Wait a minute, you. You take them heaters away from you and you're nothing. You know that? You talk yourself in the river. You take the good goods away and the kickbacks and a shakedown cabbage and a pistol arrows and you're nothing. Your guts is all in your wallet and your trigger finger. You know that? You ran it on us, Terry. From where you stand, maybe, but I'm standing over here now. I was ratting on myself all them years. I didn't even know it. Come on. You give it to Joey, you give it to Dogan, you give it to Charlie. It was one of your own. You think you're God Almighty, but you know what you are? Come on. You're a cheap, lousy, dirty, stinking mug. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. Today, we are going to look at On the Waterfront. Probably, maybe aside from Rocky, the most obvious <laughs> use of boxing that film has ever used. And, of course, it's starring Marlon Brando, Ilya Kazan. It's a 1954 crime drama. You have Carl Malden, Lee Cobb, Rod Steiger... And Bud Schulberg wrote this, so I don't even know what to say exactly, aside from it's just so iconic. And uh, I think it still holds up really, really well. And I think it held up really well when Sylvester Stallone just rehashed it. Instead of Stella, we get Adrian and the wife beater and, you know, a loan shark instead of somebody working the docks. It's... It's got so much going for it, and of course, centrally, Brando giving one of the most iconic performances in film history. So this was a lot of fun, and Stephen Benedict and I dropped into it. I hope you enjoy On the Waterfront, this week's film on No Happy Endings. Today, we are embarking on maybe the most famous boxing character in all of cinema, Terry Malloy. In 1954, the Academy Award winning On the Waterfront. Yeah, and the, the irony is here that we're talking about a boxer who we actually don't see box anywhere. <laughs> you know, and isn't that the irony? Yeah. <laughs> Why is this movie so special, do you think? Um, well, I think at the time, uh, there was a lot of things going on in and around Hollywood um, that makes it a very, very important film. We've got to, you know, just to put it in a, in a very wide uh, perspective, um, you know, the golden age of Hollywood had ended with the end of the Second World War. And it wasn't only because of the shift in the war. It was because there was a shift in the way that the studios were allowed to operate. There was the Supreme Court ruling, which was the antitrust uh, ruling from the Supreme Court in 1948, I think, which ordered the studios to, to separate themselves from the cinemas. And it meant that they no longer had an immediate outlet for their films. And so that was the beginning of the end of the studio era. And so what you have is a rush of independent filmmakers coming through. Now, you know, and I know if there's anything going to be, if there's a new, if there's a break with the old order and there's a new um, rush of filmmakers coming through, not necessarily filmmakers, but more importantly, new money. So you've got a new uh, glut of money coming through. So you've got, you know, producers who are going to define themselves differently from the studios. And in actual fact, the, the script that was originally, the, the story that was originally um, inspired uh, on the waterfront was a play that Arthur Miller had written in 1947 called The Hook. And it was inspired itself by the true story of a, of a man called Pete Panto, 
who was a young dock worker who had the um, temerity, but also the courage to stand up against the mafia-connected union leadership on the waterfront and the dock workers. But he was murdered. He and you know he disappeared and he was found dead um, a year and a half later after after he disappeared. And so this is, it was originally presented to Columbia Pictures in 1907, and Sam Cohen, um, the, the head of Cohen Pictures, said no. And then uh, they went to Daryl F. Sanok with a different um, carnation of the story, which was on the waterfront. And Daryl F. Sanok said no as well. And he says, I'm not interested in making these movies that are sort of, um, wh where's the hero in the story? He is too downbeat. And it's not exactly what we want to be, type of movie that we want to be making. And so thank God Sam Spiegel was there because it's new money that's coming in. And if you look at now, you know, um, films that I remember coming out about 10 years ago um, that were sponsored, that were uh, financed by um, Participant Pictures. And they came, Participant Pictures was set up in the wake of eBay. So, you know, when we go back to um, coming into the more modern era in the 10 years ago or whatever, Jeff Skull, who's the head of Participant Pictures, uh, he was a partner of, just, of um, eBay. He's one of the founding founder members of eBay. So when he when he stepped away, he got huge money, and this new money caused you know allowed him the opportunity to make different types of films. So he starts making films like Syriana and he mows um, Good Night and Good Luck, okay. And then he 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 financed the uh, an, un, an inconvenient truth. Mm. Now that gives us an indication of how important new money is in, in movie making. And I think that was sort of the, that's the meta narrative about On the Waterfront is the new um, uh, independent producers coming through. So yeah, I'm looking for stuff that's not exactly uh, Hollywood produce. And On the Waterfront is perfect for that. And you were saying you'd, you'd watched it again recently. Um, I'm delighted to say that revisiting it um, you know the way sometimes we say we sit down to watch a great movie and you go, which is really isn't that. But on the waterfront, truly is one of the great American movies. You know, it's really nice to to have your your um, your your belief reaffirmed. Do you know, <laughs> it really is really powerful stuff. I'd say the only thing that time stamped it for me, which is a, a strange consideration because I'm a huge fan of his work, was Leonard Bernstein's score, the only score he ever did, um, wow. and. It, it just doesn't work for me. It's always sort of combative with the scenes in which it's, it's behind. Um, but everything else I thought was so fresh. I mean, the DNA of this performance of Brando's is yeah. all over the career of Ryan Gosling, Benicio Del Toro. You see so many De Niro performances. Stallone, obviously, and Rocky is an yeah. unbelievable karaoke of this performance. <laughs> um, De Niro quoting it in Raging Bull. So you have Scorsese in conversation with it. Um, and I mean, the direction of Kazan also, you can just see why Kubrick considered him the greatest American director. At some point, he's quoted as saying that. Um, but I mean, the other thing is just behind the scenes of this film, if we can pull back from it, is we have Ilya Kazan who has ratted out a number of people at the House of Un-American activities. I would love to hear you touch upon that. And similarly, so listeners can understand the impact of Brando. This is 1954. This is the same year that Elvis breaks out. This is a Brando that has been nominated for Best Actor for 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire, 
Zapata in 1952, Julius Caesar in 53. This guy has broken out and he's about to win as the youngest actor ever to win the Best Actor nomination. But the impact of him being dropped into American culture where suddenly everybody has the undershirt and the white t-shirt and a working class kind of charismatic hero. I mean, all of modeling looks based on what Brando's just doing walking around. Yeah, you, you see, um, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a, per, um, a consumer of GQ magazine or Esquire magazine, and eventually, you know, a young hot actor appears on the scene and um, they go for the photo shoot and immediately they adopt the same posture that Brando did in um, Streetcar Named Desire and they're a little bit moody and then they wet them down, they throw a bucket of water on them and they go, that's Stanley Kowalski. It's really, really hard for um, us to underestimate the impact that Brando had on acting. There's literally before Brando and after Brando. And unfortunately, you know, um, he was a contributor to his own downfall and uh, the destruction of his own legacy because of the, the emotional problems that he, he suffered later in life, but also the way he separated himself from the studios. He had complete contempt in the end, or for the last couple of decades, for acting in, a, in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. He, you know, rightly or wrongly, he saw it as a means to um, uh, finance the civil rights movements or to protect and preserve in the indigenous population of the United States, the Native American Indian and their causes, which I think is completely noble. You know, and um, but coming back to before we go down to Kazan, um, you know, it's like Brando's arrival is like the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. You know, it, it's just impossible to say to imagine film acting without him. OK, um, he, he arrived, he burst onto the scene actually in 1947 with the stage adaptation, which was directed by Kazan of uh, Tennessee Williams play A Streetcar Named Desire. Now, originally, um, Williams had written the role of Stanley Kowalski as an older man, mm. you know, into his thir- late thirties, and um, Kazan was a little bit reluctant to, to even audition Brando, but he had heard and seen such great things of him in the actor's studio. He says, "Well, just give, let's give it a whirl." And what he saw was Brando giving a performance, and it's not so much his performance; it was his youth, his very physicality, and his very age. That Kazan said, wow, this completely different interpretation of Kowalski. Because mm. as, as the way Williams had written him was an older man who had decided he sat down into this savagery. And now when Brando comes through, it's a young man thinking this is the way you're supposed to behave. You know, he's trying to work his way through this emotional landscape. And that's one of the reasons why Brando's performance in On the Waterfront is such a phenomenal landmark, because he's playing this almost broken personality who, you know, he's this beastly figure in the ring, and now he's completely destroyed because of the mob, the mob influence. And he's looking for tenderness, he's looking for redemption, and he finds it in this character played by Marie Saint, who plays Edie. And we've alluded to this before, it's Beauty and the Beast. But for me, one of the most telling moments in the film, in On the Waterfront, is that moment in the park. It's a legendary moment when Edie's character, she drops her glove and Brando puts it on. And that's a revolutionary moment because he's literally trying on a different shape and a different size. It's a different texture now on his hand. It's not a boxing glove. It's a woman's glove. Mm-hmm. Now, we've all been told that that was a moment of great improvisation on, on Brando's part, and it just happened on screen. 
I'm a little bit skeptical about that because when I watched the movie again recently, I watched that scene and that particular, those particular frames over and over about half a dozen times. And I'm quite convinced that it happened in rehearsal because Eve Marie Saint deliberately drops her glove. Mm. She, in such a way that she, her fingers simply do not connect. And so what they're doing, what Brando was doing consciously or not was he was redefining masculinity this was a guy who was afraid of fighting now he didn't want to fight in 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 the way that he'd been trained to as a boxer his fight generally now becomes not a place of the ring but a social fight okay and you've seen it in um in streetcar where he plays as near savage but when he's with stella there's this phenomenal sensuality between the two but when he's with, with edie there's a tenderness and there's a phenomenal vulnerability, which I don't think had been portrayed on screen before. And that's my point about redefining masculinity, because if you look at the actors who've come in his wake, you know, and the most obvious ones would be De Niro and Pacino because of The Godfather. But even more, more recently than that, Brando was going to make a movie. He did make a movie with Johnny Depp called Don Juan de Marco. Now, and it's a send up. And isn't that a re-examination of masculinity? Sure. And then, if you look at what uh, Johnny Depp was doing, he starts out as this teenage heartthrob and he just simply does not want to play that game. And I think one of the first feature films that he does is Edward Scissorhands, an incomplete, very, very vulnerable man. And then his one of the next big pictures he does is Ed Wood, you know, where he plays a, a, a transvestite. So, you know, all of a sudden we've got this redefining again of masculinity. And that's one of the reasons why I think Brando's performance and on the waterfront is is so brilliant because you can read it from so many different perspectives. We can read, as you said, we'll go back to Kazan now with um, the House of American Activities Committee, the investigation into communists in, in, in Hollywood, and the reason why Kazan makes the film. Is it an apology, an, an apology for him having, as you said, ratted out his friends, the former communists? Um, is it an allegory for that? That is definitely one way, very, very clear way of reading the film. But it's also a question of, as I said to you, masculinity and performance. And then, you know, one of the reasons why Scorsese loves the film so much is because he said, when I was, when I was young, I was too young. I wasn't born in the time of the Depression, so he didn't see those realist Depression-era dramas coming out of Hollywood. And so what you have is the golden age of Hollywood, which is watching, which is very stylized and very mannered. But when Waterfront arrives, he goes... I know those bars, I know those clothes, I know that landscape, <clears throat> I know that terrain. And so it, it helps redefine, not only, as I was saying, in terms of acting, but helps redefine what American cinema can be. It can be highly politicized in a direct manner. Um, and at the same time, it can address contradiction and conflict and paradox, and to a certain degree, hypocrisy, mm. you know? Um, um, we just spoken about it just before when Kazan was given a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Oscars. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the people in the audience stood up and applauded. And then a lot of people sat down and didn't even applaud. Ed Harris and his wife, Amy Madigan, resolutely did not applaud and acknowledge him at all. Warren Beatty stood up and applauded because without Elia Kazan, sorry, Elia Kazan, he probably wouldn't have had that wonderful start in his career with a face in the crowd. But the people standing beside Kazan as he received the award were Scorsese and De Niro. Right. And, you know, I think the thing is, for me, Scorsese is a very political filmmaker, right? He has repeatedly throughout his career been offering up a critique of American history and American culture. 
Um, but the reason why I think Scorsese identified supports Kazan, supported Kazan so much was because there's another part of Scorsese, as there should be part of every single phenomenally talented artist, a ruthlessness, an absolute shark-like intention of, I don't care whether this is the right thing or anybody thinking this is the right or wrong thing to do. This is what I want to do and I'm going to do it. And Kazan did it because he was so damned hungry to keep working and make the movies that he wanted to make. And later in his career, in his biography for my life, he said um, the movies that he made after the when he named names, the only films that he's, he's, he, he's interested in talking about. He says the films before I named names were nothing. Hmm. Do you know? And so his body of work, it's almost like a sort of expurgation when he went to name names. This has sort of freed him up emotionally and politically and creative creatively and he says now i can do what i i need to do but at the same time and um, you mentioned bernstein uh, bernstein wouldn't do the score originally for mm. that reason he didn't he didn't agree with what kazan had done brando was heartbroken when uh, he learned that kazan had named names so but the thing is it's it's not really so much that he named names it's what they did it's the, the, the way they reconciled their friendships and their relationships with each other after that, which I think is much more telling about, about Hollywood, about talent, about hunger for creativity, and also, you know, hunger for success. Right. Well, and I, I, I want to touch upon Brando because this was originally going to have Frank Sinatra in the lead based on a handshake, which I never cared for Sinatra as an actor at all. <laughs> Just, um, but this is also... Interesting. I think it's important to get at the majesty of this performance with Brando is to look at where he was in his life. He literally had it in his contract that at four every day, he was able to get off of work and go directly to his analyst. Brando, for people who don't know his background, wow. his both his parents were out, like raging alcoholics. Uh, when later on in Last Tango in Paris, he is improvising a description of his background in Nebraska, it's pretty much factual what he's talking about. His dad being described as a whorefucker, a bar fighter, a brutal person with very little love in his heart. Uh, you hear this even more um, articulated by him in, in a really interesting biography, Listen to Me, Marlon, yes. where he it's a lot of internal therapy and monologues and that kind of thing. But he talks about this tender bond that he had with his mother who was really, to use his words, the town drunk. He would have to go to jail to pick her up. Um, a lot of his anger that he's drawing from on screen he described as being uh, using Stanislavski's Stanislavski, I have trouble pronouncing it, Stanislavski um, drawing for the great anger and electric excitement that he projects into his rage that just happens at such a snap. He was using as his trigger um, memories of his mother being beaten by his father and threatening to kill his father if he if he so much as lay a hand on his mother again. Um, and this is somebody where the layers that he has, when you're describing the glove, and I agree, to me that's one of the most interesting scenes in the whole film. I think it's my favorite scene. But think back, well, think ahead to The Godfather all of those actors around him when we first see Brando in the opening scene and the family comes in with him, think of the way that Brando plays with that cat. He, <laughs> he, 
he has a cat that none of that is scripted, but he's going to have a cat that's in his lap and he's playing with it. All of those actors who are around him, James Caan, Robert Duvall, Robert Duvall made the point to say he's there with a cat he doesn't know. And you notice the cat is completely comfortable as if it's his family cat for several years. But he never looks at the cat as he's engaging with it. He's engaging with it while talking to the actors. It's subtle, but these are the layers that Brando would incorporate that nobody had ever really done before, I think, in film acting. And just as you're saying with the glove, the way he's interacting with it that gets Eva Marie Saint's attention, where you can see her that she's present in the moment, not knowing what he's doing. It's a little distracting, but it just makes it so much truer to life at a time where, you know, 1954, go watch the other big name actors with how they're performing. And as Brando said, it's like breakfast cereal. You know exactly what you're getting with every single actor. That's what he said. Yeah, that was a great line. You know, you, you open up the box, you know exactly what you're going to get, even before you open up the box, because it's there on the label. You're absolutely right. But also, you know, the thing is, when we talk about um, On the Waterfront, we always remember the moments that we're told about before we see the film. And quite rightly, you know, I Could Have Been a Contender is a beautifully crafted speech. You know, it's a really, really heartbreaking speech um, because it's between two brothers. It couldn't work if it was between himself and his coach, which we see so many times in other, in other boxing pictures. But, you know, for me, there's another brilliant scene. I mean, the, the film is, is full of them, okay? The, the, the scene with Carl Malden when he's down in the, the, in, in the belly of the, of the boat, right, on the dockland. He says, Christ is down here with us. That's yeah. brilliant. And, you know, and, you know, you're talking to a complete collapsed Catholic, okay? Yeah. But that floors me, right? That yeah. scene gets its hooks in me because it's just so full of decency and courage and pain and the need to connect to people. And that brings me into what I think is, the, is a beautiful line, but it's almost the point that it's completely forgotten. It's almost a throwaway line. When Edie's talking to Terry and she says, isn't everybody part of everybody else? And Terry just throws it, you, don't really, you really don't believe in that drool, do you? Yeah. Right? And that phrase, isn't everybody part of everybody else? I, I'd forgotten about that until a couple of years ago when I rewatched it for the umpteenth time. But then I think I heard it properly because for me, I can't hear that line ever again without thinking of the Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sorry, you're going to hear a grown man cry because I can't recite this speech without welling up. OK, it's when Tom Joad is talking to his mother and he says, well, maybe it's like Casey says. A fella ain't got a soul of his own. Just a little piece of a big soul, the one big soul that belongs to everybody. There we go. You heard me cry. That is an absolutely knockout piece of writing from Steinbeck and Schulberg, who has written one of the most great scripts in the history of American cinema, repeats that sentiment in that one in that one line from Edie. You know, it's not that he sort of condensed it. He just said, well, this is part of the theme. It's about connectivity. It's about community. It's about bonding together. It's caring for one another. It's, you know, brotherhood, which is a word we won't use because it's too associated with communism. And Edie, I think, you know, um, she's the, obviously she's the key. She's the, she's the key to redemption for Terry. 
Um, but I think that Eve Marie Saint is a brilliant, brilliant performance and astonishing to think that she really hadn't been seen before, you know? Yeah. She's wonderful in it, and I agree. I, I was thinking with Carl Malden, it reminds me of, as I would confront hypocrisy with the church in various ways with friends of mine who are religious, and they'd say, not all of them are this way. Not all of them are molesting kids or that kind of thing, or it's glaring hypocrisy or the sadism that's depicted in Hollywood. My priest wasn't like that. My priest, and they describe things like you see with Carl Malden, and I, I think it's good to have some of these people where you think, if Christ came back, he would be proud of somebody like that in terms of representing the word as opposed to the institution and where that has gone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, Carl Malden was beautifully cast as well. You know, we have in different episodes, we've been wondering about recasting roles, mm. you know, and it's, this is one of the toughest ones to do because, you know, how can you top? Martin Brando's performance. How could he top even Saint? There's only one other one other actress, I think, in Hollywood at the time who could have gone near it. And she's completely wrong, is Maureen O'Hara. Mm. Right? And immediately you say, What? This red-headed Irish, fiery, flamey woman? I said, Well, maybe. But the thing was, Maureen O'Hara's performer persona was too too headstrong for the character of Edie. Um, but she could have been able, she could have been, she may have been able to chart that arc. You know, um, because coming from Ireland and, you know, where, where women had to adopt a very, very traditional role, maybe Maureen O'Hara would have been able to do it. But, you know, Carl Malden there, Lee J. Cobb, how do you how, how do you top that cast? It's one of the greatest casts. And the background cast of having uh, Tutan, I forget his name, but he was a former heavyweight who's one of the muscle um He's the, he has the biggest hands I've ever seen on screen outside of Andre the Giant in The Princess Bride. His hands were so big, it was frightening. Right. Um, you had from, I think, The Monsters, one of the actors from that. Um, Fred, yeah. And it's, it's interesting also, I mean, this is a time, not long ago I watched all of, of Twilight Zone, the original series, right. and you basically see all of Hollywood that's about, like, meaningful Hollywood that's about to emerge in the 60s and 70s. Well, yep. you know, Robert Redford has a role in it. I mean, everybody that you can imagine, Jonathan Winters, who's who? Like, look it up on IMD, who has starred in Twilight Zone. This had that feeling a little bit where we're moving away from theater. Uh, you know, it's really pre-television. You were mentioning the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. That's almost 10 years away. Um, it's just fascinating almost as a historical document to try to get back to this time. Um, same with unions. This was a time where unions in the country were extraordinarily powerful, coming off of FDR and empowering it at a time where he's signing tax bills to get 90% for the richest Americans, signing a bill saying this one's for William Randolph Hearst with a wink. I mean, imagine <laughs> that was the government that was in this country. You know, yeah. incredible um, to just understanding, you know, what what Brando was doing with this role, how this was shaping America, American consciousness. Um, you know, I was thinking I heard a lot of stories in my family as a logger. My grandfather is a logger of him having to travel all over the province um, to support his kids looking for work. And frequently places would hire him for a month or two and then stiff him on the payment. Wow, even worse. Yeah, yeah. 
So he's got to go to the next place. So you feel the power of this union being encroached upon by the, by the mafia and looking for some way to get ahead. And there's just no way. I mean, it almost, uh, it's interesting here how you get a very unsympathetic portrait of the mafia, as opposed to what's going to happen with Coppola and Hollywood to come. Romanticization of romanticization. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why, um, on the waterfront works, uh, against you know uh, is is against the mafia very very clearly, and um, is that brilliant scene where all the workers are waiting in the morning to be called, and then they throw out a few other buttons and they they swarm around the buttons like pigeons like birds and that's an allusion there to the pigeons being murdered, and um, and you know the thing is also you know Kazan like all the truly really great American directors at the time were smart enough to keep an eye on other cinema coming from in from around the world, and specifically the, the movies emerging from Italy. And I think it's hard to underestimate the importance of Italian neorealism and its effect it had on uh, Kazan and Brando and, and specifically on the waterfront, because uh, there's a movie made by Lucchino Visconti in 1947 called La Terra which takes place in Sicily and focuses on the monopoly that the mafia have on the the shipping villages, the fishing villages, sorry. And there's this family who are struggling against trying to break free from it. And they have the courage, but also the temerity to break out on their own. But unfortunately, their nets are ruined and their their small boats sink. And then they have to go back into the the harbour, into the fishing master and ask for work to continue. And they're laughed at and they're mocked and scorned but they go back to work. And if you watch that movie, it's hard to watch the end of On the Waterfront and not be reminded of what happens at the, at the end of Terra Trema. Now, the brilliant thing, the reason why I mentioned La Terra Trema and Visconti and the Neorealist is because they were non-professional actors in the Neorealist movies, okay? And then if you look at the faces of the characters behind, uh, so the, the, the characters um, populating the background of On the Waterfront, they were real local Hand, local workers, right? And so, you know, five years, ten years previously, in 1945, you wouldn't have had those real faces—the faces that have been gnarled and broken and, and scarred, or just aged uh, prematurely. Or the, the, the sort of the, the shape of the chin would never have been cast by a casting director in the studios. But you're looking at real faces there, and that gives it another air of authenticity. Obviously, shooting it on location was an enormous thing as well. Yeah. So that that is one of the reasons why it's so groundbreaking, and it it still rings true today because it's a it's sort of it's a it's a little subliminal signifier for the audience. We don't know why this is more vivid, but because part of it is because the faces, and I say this respectfully, aren't beautiful. They're they're the people that I sit beside when well not anymore because we're all under COVID, but going to work, right on on the trains. These are the people you sit beside. And these are the real faces. And that is sort of just, it's a subliminal um, uh, piece of information for us to, to absorb and go, this really rings true, you know? But just, I, I don't mean to pick you up, I slightly disagree with you on the, the Bernstein score. And I just wanted to make sure. a point before. I, I agree with you, I think it's melodramatic. It's almost to the point of operatic. And you're completely right when it, it works against the scene. It's almost in conflict with, or it, battling against it. It's vying for a competition. But the reason why I want to mention it is because it opens up in a very, very strange way. 
it opens up with a, I think it's a French horn, mm. which is a really, really quiet opening. Usually films in the 1950s coming out of Hollywood would have been big and loud and full of brass, dun, 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 and let us know that this is a big Hollywood production. This is starting Marlon Brando, the three-time Oscar-nominated actor. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Uh, Daryl Sanek apparently wanted to shoot it in Technicolor and widescreen, and Kazan said no. And then um, when they went to Sam Spiegel, Sam Spiegel, the only reason why Bernstein did the score is because Spiegel wanted a big name mm. on the And Bernstein never did a score again for a movie because he said, I don't want to be a background accompaniment. I didn't want my music to be like wallpaper. But I just wanted to mention that that's one of the reasons why it's, it's a highly regarded score. Mm. And one that goes against the grain I think I'm, I'm, I'm in, agree with, in agreement with you for the rest of it, but I just love the opening. It's very, very quiet. It's almost like, um, I wouldn't call it a dirge or a funeral or a lament, but it's not what we expect. I, I, like, I like the opening of it too. I think it's an interesting score. Like the melody of it, I think, is very interesting. I just don't like, with Eva Marie Saint, I was just thinking it's more compelling to be muted here. Yes. It, yes. it would be more compelling to have silences yeah. drawn out and felt. Uh, yeah. I want this to have more reality rather than big movie behind it a little bit. But but I do like the score. Yeah, it, it almost it bullies you into what you're supposed to feel, you know. Well, and I think, and so, I, I I just think like if if you know Bernard Herman, I know Pauline Kael was very against. Uh, Taxi driver score, but uh, to me, it's so unusual that it's it's inseparable from like the weirdness of that film, the bent, distorted thing. Bernard Herrmann um, in Psycho, or especially in Vertigo, the the pursuing, you know, where the pursuit through the streets of San Francisco. We're going through real streets in San Francisco, which is quite interesting. For ten minutes, we're in the car with him following him and this is where all of those critiques about jimmy stewart and 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 hitchcock uh this toxic masculinity i'm thinking no he's looking right at toxic masculinity we're looking right at a critical eye of this perspective um and similarly with with on the waterfront i found that you have as I mentioned with Twilight Zone, one of the things that I didn't remember is when you're watching Twilight Zone, how low budget it is. Yeah. It's almost <laughs> like a little theater thing. You've got maybe two sets at most. If it's New York, it's the same New York every time because they clearly just had a block and a half to work with with yeah. buildings. Um, you never look up. You just see the stoops and kind of thing to, to make it uh, pretend to be New York. Again, a silly karaoke of New York. But anyway, it's the best they could do. Here I felt when the first time, a bit like Godfather, when uh, the cannoli scene where you just see over the wheat field, the Statue of Liberty, here you get a bit of seeing the Empire State Building across the water in Manhattan. Yeah. It's subtle. It's subtle, but it looks very real, and you very much feel like you're in Brooklyn. Could be any waterfront at times, but it lets you know that it's in New York in an interesting tasteful meaningful ways that give yeah. you a sense of place yeah it didn't i mean the equivalent the, the cliche today is to crossing queensborough bridge or yeah. williamsburg bridge williamsburg and you know or you know a horse-drawn carriage to the park 
And, you know, undoubtedly, yeah, but it, it, it's they're, they're lazy. OK, and um, in 1955, as you said, we can see it in the distance. It's subtle. They're not sort of saying they don't give us a, a view down Fifth Avenue. Right. Because for, firstly, that would be completely inappropriate. It wouldn't work for the story at all. But I also what I love on the opening sequence is you have this ma massive ship on the dock and this tiny little wood hut. And that's where the control lies. That's where the power lies in this grubby little wooden hut. Yeah. Probably, you know, the, the wood would probably be really, really damp and almost the point of rotting, do you know? And I think Kazan knew exactly how to, in a very, very relaxed way, play the icons up without foregrounding them. And it was just took to great courage and sort of self-confidence just to put the put the skyline in the background. You yeah. Know, you have to have the big dun, 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 New York 1954. No, it's, know, it's elegant. Yeah, and I think also a lot of that has come down to Bud Schulberg's screenplay. I think, you know, quite rightly, Kazan gets an awful lot of kudos for it. But, we, you know, Kazan wrote, worked repeatedly with some fantastic writers. I mean, um, with obviously with Arthur Miller, you know, um, then he, he worked with, street, um, I was going to say streetcar names are Robin, um, Robin, sorry, Tennessee, Tennessee Woods. Tennessee yeah. Woods, yeah. Um, Bud Schilberg, he worked with twice. He worked with John Steinbeck. He worked with Harold Pinter, you know, and it's 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 uh, it's no coincidence because all the writers loved what he did because the writers, whenever I'm sure they were chatting with each other, either part of the, the writers club or just simply on the phone. And they say, no, no, Kazan takes care of your writing. He doesn't screw it up. And they go, oh, I'll work with him then. So it's, it, you know, it's not it's not a fluke, you know. So Schilberg's screenplay is one of the best. One of the best, um, and you know, just the arc of so many different characters. You yeah, know, it's, it's enough that Brando goes in this arc, but the the tragic end for his brother, played by Rod Steiger. I mean, you know, we, we it's amazing to think we could talk about other actors in the movie, and we have yet to mention Steiger. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. Yeah, and that's that's the embarrassment of riches the film has. And again, that's what I was saying to you. It was a, it was a delight to watch it again recently and say. It, it is truly a great American movie, as opposed to, you know, the way when you're flipping through the channels and you come across a, you know, a little bit of film history and said, oh, yeah, this is one of the great American movies. And you feel as though you're just being you're being bullied into it because the TV, the TV network are going to run a season of these films they want you to watch. They keep telling you this is a great American movie. And you sit down to watch it and it ain't <laughs> you know? yeah. Waterfront is. Yeah. Well, no, I I was also going to say in terms of. The impact that this film had, I think, on American culture, one place that's interesting to pick up on that, I guess, 30, 31 years later, is the only boxer that I can think of that has this huge connection with the rooftops of Brooklyn and pigeons and killed pigeons is Mike Tyson. Oh, my Mike God. Mike Tyson became a fighter. This was a serially picked on kid mocked for his lisp mocked for being a homosexual beat on by kids never stood up for himself high-pitched kind of brando voice you know stereotypically sort of lispy in, in a gay kind of way in terms of how he was picked on mama's boy very close to his bigger sister who was morbidly obese when he was finally able to connect to something, it was the pigeons on the rooftop. Wow. He loved them. And what turned him into what he became 
from victim to victimizer, drawing from how profoundly sensitive he was as a victim to how profoundly adept he was at a victimizer, was a bully followed him up on the rooftop and twisted the head of one of his favorite pigeons in front of him. And that was the first time he was able to fight back. And he completely transformed into the other mode, which later led him to being incarcerated. He had a huge rap sheet of dozens and dozens and dozens of charges, um, using a gun to rob people, shooting at people, shot at, but eventually he gets institutionalized in one of New York's most hard juvenile delinquent jails, Tryon, where boxing gets introduced. And wow. boxing sharpens him into this other path but they always drew in terms of the mythology of Mike Tyson, where he would become the most lucrative athlete in history at that time. Let's remember that when Mike Tyson in 1988 was making $21 million for 90 seconds, Michael Jordan was making two and a half million for a season of work. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's where Tyson was at that time, at a time where Van Gogh was selling for $54 million dollars. Yeah. Tyson spent 90 minutes, 90 seconds to earn half of that. Yeah. Um, the big mythological foundation of that story was the kid on the rooftops of, of Brooklyn who was obsessed with pigeons and his pigeon coop. And I have not heard much of, of the connective tissue between that and Brando's character who spends a lot of that movie with yeah. pigeons, is hugely traumatized by the, the murder of all of his pigeons, on the rooftop after he becomes a canary. Um, but I just thought a lot of this, I'm sure, readied the public, primed the public for that Tyson origin story of, we know what this kind of person is, a boxer who spends all of his free time with pigeons, a sensitive animal lover. We know exactly who that is. And I think the Brando connective tissue to Tyson is very strong on a lot of levels. Plus the sensitivity, the voice, the lisp. Um, so I just thought that's an interesting thing to look at how his popularity, Tyson exploded with money and popularity in a way that was really unprecedented. And I think that this film and Brando really aided that a lot. Yeah, and it's also interesting as you were saying, because you know when Tyson was very young, um, the bully murders the pigeon. Mm -hmm. uh, significantly in On the Waterfront, it's not the mob who kill all the pigeons. It's one of the young boys who mm -hmm. have the young boy and he's sort of um, a friend with Terry because they have a shared bond with, with, uh, with sporting racing pigeons. And it's he who kills all the pigeons. And he does so at the behest of the mob. Just the way Brando had enticed Edie's brother out of the house up to the rooftop to be murdered. I never knew that story about Mike Tyson and it just blows my mind to think that that moment was where he fought back. And you know, is there any documentation to say that maybe he has seen the film on the waterfront or I've never I've never heard it referenced, but I mean it seems so intuitive a connection that I, I mean I doubt we're the first to break ground on it. Um, but no, I mean, it's a, it was a huge theme of selling Tyson. I think his first spread in Sports Illustrated where he's 18 is showing him with pigeons already. That, oh, that, that's a major pursuit of his. Yeah, well, no, that's, it's, it's very, very clear then. I mean, whoever was running that article, as you're saying, knew 
Brando's performance and the, the origins of that and on the waterfront. I mean, I, you know, I just remember, I remember seeing Tyson on TV as being interviewed and he came across as incredibly gentle. And then obviously in the ring, it just absolutely erupts, it explodes. And yeah. that's what Brando had, is, as, you, as you said, this uh, eruption of anger and violence. Um, obviously drawing from his own experiences as a child, witnessing. And it's interesting that, as you were saying, about, we were talking about actors who were influenced by Brando. And if you think about Brando witnessing his father threatening to murder his mother, when you said that, I immediately remembered um, Russell Crowe's performance of Bud White in L.A. Confidential, where he was handcuffed to the radiator for three days after his, his father had beaten his mother to death with a, with a, uh, a tire iron. And so it's, a, it's amazing how those moments, you know, obviously in Brando's case come from real life, but then the mythology of Brando then feeds into storytelling and for authors themselves to use as that. Now, obviously, you know, when James Elroy wrote um, L.A. Confidential, he had done copious research and he knew all the great stories about the, the, the police force in Los Angeles. But it's, it's interesting, that's the story he chose to tell. He yeah. chose to lie to Bud White this man who is enormously protective of women, but also capable of inflicting terrible pain upon them. And Brando, who, who has witnessed the great suffering of his mother, and then, as you said, going down to the prison, the police station to bring her out and all this sort of stuff. And yet at the same time, he plays these men who have potential for phenomenal violence themselves. So obviously he clearly understood that. Yeah. And he understood, and understood that violence. And the great thing about, I think it's a great thing about Kazan and Schulberg as well, that they had a very clear understanding too. You know, there's a very, very funny story where Bud Schulberg, I think it was Schulberg, woke up in the middle of the night and his wife said, where are you going? And she says, he says, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And she says, who? And she says, Kazan, I've got to kill him. Because he was so enraged because what the argument that had been having that day. And it just shows, you know, how brilliantly the both, both all three of them, Brando, Kazan and Schulberg can can tap into the great suffering that brings about brings about rage, you know, um, but also it's interesting the way that that the, the movie is so critical of mafia, and then as you as you alluded to there, the next generation of filmmakers inadvertently romanticized the mafia, and I don't know what why or at what point that shift occurred. Why did villainy and criminality become so? seductive or attractive to storytellers do you know what i mean i, I mean, do i mean i think uh, i would argue i mean you have jesse james as the first modern celebrity in america so i i don't know that it's ever been different because yeah. uh even who killed jesse james robert ford his face was i i believe was more known um like 30 fold than the president of the united states to the average american and so you kind of have the first celebrity stalker in right. Robert Ford. Right, like Mark David Chapman murdering John Lennon. Same same thing. I mean, a 21-year-old kid, or I mean, he was really young when it happened. I think Jesse James was only 34 when he was assassinated. But who was Jesse James? I mean, a ruthless bank robber, ruthless murderer, um, coming from the South. I mean, tried to contextualize it as a, some sort of offshoot of the Civil War. But I mean, it was complete horseshit 
Well, yeah, I, I agree with you there. I'm glad you said that. You beat me, excuse upon you, beat me to the punch. Because I think with regard to Jesse James, he was mythologized and venerated by, uh, I think, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a journalist. He was a guy who owned a newspaper. And he felt deeply aggrieved as to what had happened to the South. And he saw Jesse James, or he redressed Jesse James as a Robin Hood type figure. Right, who was exactly resurrection of the south and i think also clearly i mean jesse james and his gang they were very very young men who had been part of a war these guys were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder they were getting no and um, no therapy obviously they're getting no support and they were you know i think i don't know whether jesse james had his predisposition but clearly psychotic and okay. in, inadvertently this psychosis is romanticized you know and i think you're, you're absolutely right um so it was there from way before Coppola doing The Godfather and Mario Puzo writing The Godfather. But, you know, there are certain moments, I think, in American history or in American Hollywood movie making where they, you know, they, uh, they're very, very clearly marked in terms of their regard for criminality. You know, obviously, it was during the, the Hayes Code, um, you know, criminals had to be brought to justice. Right. And then when the Hayes Code is dismantled in 66, then you have an opening where films like The Godfather and Bonnie and Clyde come, come, come through, The Wild Bunch coming through, you know. Um, so the, the, all, inadvertently, the first wave of these filmmakers were liberated from the Hayes Code, immediately go to romanticizing these very, very problematic men. Well, and you just, and I think you just look at what they omit to see the ways in which they are romanticizing and propagandizing these people that. Brando and Pacino in All the Godfathers are never cheating on their wives. Do we really think that these organized criminals, that they have this tremendous fidelity to family, you know, prote protecting their wives and this oath of marriage is so much more important than their oath to the church <laughs> that they're violating all the time, everywhere? Yeah. Um, you know, I often think about that with Muhammad Ali, that he gets venerated. Look at this tremendous stand he took on behalf of his faith against the Vietnam War. Well, look at the faith he took towards his wives that he was serially cheating on, yeah. which is punishable by death in Islam. Did he have any fear of repercussions yeah. where it didn't suit him? And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to, I love Muhammad Ali, but it's just the hypocrisy is so glaring. Yeah, it's a hypocrisy on our part to venerate and ignore. We venerate a certain aspect of the personality right. we willfully ignore. It reminds me, I mean, as you were talking about the Godfather there and the oath, you know, and the, the loyalty, the fidelity to the wife. And then we, along comes the Sopranos. And Tony is spraying right. everywhere. And it, again, I think there's a beautiful moment in the very, very first episode of that, in the very, very first episode of the very, very first season, when, when Tony actually is in therapy and he's saying, I think I came in a little bit late, that, you know, America peaked. And immediately that lets us know this, isn't, this, is, show, this is a show that's not just about a family. This right. is about America, you know, and it's that, that acknowledgement to it. And I think On the Waterfront feeds into that by bringing in the police investigating the mob, right. you know, despite the House of American Activities Committee. And they're just basically openly, openly acknowledging it. This movie is about the waterfront, but it's about America as well. You know, and that's one of the reasons why all these years later, it's, it's, so, it's such a rewarding uh, viewing. You, know, it, you tend to forget the little moments which are so brilliantly delivered as well. I, th I agree with you. I mean, I do think you also see Kazan 
with his thumb on the scale that the police here are totally unimpeachable, totally nor normal. The, pre the, the priest is completely noble as yeah. well, um, so that the honorable thing to do is to rat everybody out. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's really clear that there's no moral ambiguity here with Brandon. He's a coward not to rat people out. It's very yeah. self-serving narrative. Where, whereas I think with the Sopranos, what I love about it is you get to see how the wife has to deal with her allowing, enabling, her lack of moral objection to taking all the money and proceeds from yes. this criminality and murder, just like the kids who want to lecture him periodically, but they yeah. certainly haven't minded the luxury that it's afforded yeah. versus the the, all, the counterfactual of Tony, which I think they do a whole episode of, of Tony just being a traveling salesman or something. <laughs> you know, so I, I did like in this film that you get a sense, like, I mean, we discussed the boxer the other day looking at very complex things where every single character they kind of had as a stand-in for a bigger issue didn't land. In this one, every character they have, there's enough room for them to breathe in a shorter film, mind you, um, where everybody lands. I'm not saying I agree, I agree with everywhere where they land because I think Kazan, as I mentioned, was being pretty manipulative in a self-serving way, but it sure works for that story. I know, but I mean, the take the, the again the puzzling thing about the boxer was, you know, Jim Sheridan knew exactly where he stood on the issue, yeah. and Danny Lewis knew precisely where he worked and stood on the issue, and so did Terry George, Terry um, Jim Sheridan's co-writer in the, in the screenplay, and yet, and we're still trying to puzzle out and figure out why it didn't work. But coming back to, you know, we're talking about um, men and their infidelity towards their wives and the way they, they mistreat them. And the, 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 the turn that Brando's character has to go through, it's, it's just a minor little thing. The only thing about, you know, uh, I'm not saying that if, you're, if they were to remake On the Waterfront today, um, minor little thing is that there's a little bit of the Smurfette syndrome in On the Waterfront. <laughs> yeah. She's the only girl. And that's, well, you know, that's unfortunately reflective of the times, but that's one of the reasons why The Sopranos was so damn good. Yeah. Because you had Carmela, you had Dr. Melfi played by Lorraine Bracco, sorry, Edie Falco playing Carmela, and then his mother, Livia, played by Lan oh. Nancy Chong. And really? it's, it's dreadful pity that she died. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because here is a guy who had the, the, the three people he was terrified of in his life were, were women, and the yeah. only people who could actually control him. And that's, I think, one of the real reasons why The Sopranos had such longevity and depth is because it broadened it out to being just. As opposed to just being boys club, we had the perspective of women. And then, as you said, the complete hypocrisy of I'll take the money, Tony, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, and, you know, and then also there's a brilliant moment. I can't remember which season it is, but she says, you know, Tony, I could accept the infidelity and screwing around, but I just don't have any respect. And that's the point at which she that's her that's her sort of um, her line in the sand. And that was brilliantly surprising as well, you know. Um, but that's just a minor little, tiny, tiny little criticism of um, On the Waterfront, you know. But the great thing is they didn't cast, they, they cast the role of Edie brilliantly because the temptation of, of a lazy director and a lazy producer would have put, just to put in the most beautiful girl you can get. And it doesn't matter how badly she portrayed, she delivers the, the performance. She, we all know that she's the pretty girl and that's the reason why he's after her. 
and he's he's not he doesn't fall in love with Edie because of her beauty. You no. know, there's so many different reasons why he falls for her. Which I think no, it's so it's so layered that her brother and his guilt guilt for participating in the murder of her brother in the sense of luring him up on the rooftop, but not knowing that it would be a murder. Yeah, yeah, just the the balance of this the feng shui of this film of yeah. the layout of everybody is is really really staggering that it holds up yeah. 66 years later and you're just like this is still fresh you could yeah. redo this in a heartbeat and it would work really interestingly uh no and i i can't wait to go from here to what i mean 1954 we're going 18 years later to catch up with terry malloy in some respect Yes. Last Tango in Paris, when it's referenced only once that this guy used to be an actor and used to be a boxer, uh, I think that there is an argument we're going to put forward about that Last Tango and the pathos of this recovering widow from a suicide who has no idea where to go except uh, going full bore into anonymous one night stand, which gets stretched out into anonymous fling. Um, we're looking a bit at Terry Malloy aging in a way that we've seen a lot of major cultural figures yeah, kind yeah. of go go right into this abyss that this film seems to tackle. Um, so, I mean, on, on the whole, could we cast anybody but Brando in this film and it would be anywhere near as special? And, well, you, you can, but I don't think it would be anywhere near as special. I, I agree with you there. But, you know, the thing, the, the difficulty that we have today, looking back, Bryn, is you know we don't know how many of the, the, the really, really great actors at the time. We, we can think of the movie stars, but just going back to what Warren Beatty said, when you recast, you rewrite. Mm. And bearing in mind Tennessee Williams had written Stanley Kowalski for an older man, let's just for a second, if any of our listeners are familiar with the movie, it's a beautiful movie from 1948 called Force of Evil, which is about two brothers, Robert Ryan and Thomas Gomez, play brothers in uh, the numbers racket in New York. And, and Robert Ryan is the lawyer, stroke Rod Steiger on the waterfront. Mm. And Thomas Gomez is a, a guy who plays, uh, who, who runs the, the local chapter, the, bracket, the, the, the rackets. And maybe he could have played um, Rod Steiger's part. Mm. That's um, a good one. Okay, and then, this is gonna sound strange, get ready to laugh. If you're rewriting it, you, you know, you make him. You either make him an older man, a much um, that Gomez would be an older. He played the father, not the brother. Yeah, that's interesting. If I'm going to go for the father and the brother, that realigns Carl Malden's character because he's a priest himself, that sort of father figure, and so maybe that would make more sense that Thomas Gomez plays the completely corrupt father, right? And uh, the, the the Terry Malloy character is trying to break away from that. Now, here's what I'm going to. Possibly it's going to fall apart. So prepare to laugh. Tony Curtis. Oh, interesting. Right? A beautiful boy. And he gets absolutely destroyed at the end of the, at the movie. Huh. Completely destroyed. Now, the thing is, we've got to remember, in, in, this, in this reimagining, we're going to reconfigure a lot of the plot. Because, you know, when you, when you recast, you rewrite. And then rewrite to change the plot. But my point really is, if... You know, the way Brando was, was brutalized at the end of the, at the movie, can you imagine, I mean, beautiful as Brando was, he wasn't the kid with the ice cream face. And I'm quoting from my, uh, The sweet Secret of My Success, or my, sorry, I'm quoting from uh, Sweet Smell of Success. 
Right. Uh, Tony Curtis plays in that in 50, 59. Um, I just think that, that sort of beauty, that sort of gaucheness, that sort of arrogance that Tony Curtis had, that self-confidence. And maybe then, of course, you wouldn't have had that wonderful scene in the back of the car where he says, I could, have been, I could have had class, I could have been a contender. Maybe you would have seen him on the rise as a, as a boxer and then completely destroyed by the mob at the end of the second act. And the third act, he turns against them. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? So, you know, it's, a, it's great fun for us to play and for other people to play the game of recasting. But when you're recasting, you've got to reimagine the whole story. I think. I think, yeah, I think those are really interesting choices. I mean, Paul Newman would be 28 at this time. And James, James, yeah, James Dean. Nah. I don't no, know. James Dean would have been right. Um, well, he would have been, yeah, no, he would have been, I don't think, he was too, um, too agitated on screen all the time. Um, there had to be a sense of repose about Terry. Do you know what I mean? He's sort of a stillness. Of yeah, I, I mean, the only time where James Dean doesn't seem kind of ridiculous, I mean, I'd love to watch him on screen. He's fascinating. But, I mean, Giant was the only film where he looked natural, where right. it just didn't seem like this sort of weird Dean Kabuki theater yeah. thing he was doing that I just don't know what he's doing. I mean, it's interesting because it's so weird. But yeah. uh, in Giant, I just thought, wow, like, this guy had huge potential to be something really extraordinary. Apart from, he can't be photographed without you freezing the still and it becomes a great poster. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the character set rank obviously was much more interesting than the, the character he played in um, uh, Rebel Without a Cause. I can't remember the, the guy's, the, the boy's name that he played. But you're right. But I mean, there was a, there was a constant agitation. Yeah. You know, an affectation about young young Dean. And I think he, he learned... Or maybe George Stevens was the guy who got him to calm down and sort of be still. Yeah. Just don't move, just play it less, play it less, play it less. And I think that's what Terry needed. When Brando, you know, you mentioned Brian Gosling, a brilliant actor who does so little. Yeah. I mean, not with respect. He does so much, but there's so little. In, it's oh, like, I totally agree. Like Steve McQueen, a guy who... Can you remember the, any one single memorable line that Stephen Queen ever uttered in his entire career? No, he didn't have one. He didn't need one. He was a very quiet guy. He didn't. He wasn't verbalized. He just. He just was. <laughs> he just. That's a great observation because I mean, Steve McQueen. I watched Papillon not long ago, uh, and it's such an extraordinary performance. And you're right, Gosling. That is a very interesting air, like like lineage to him, because Drive is totally him doing Steve McQueen. Oh yeah, um, and Half Nelson. I mean that range there with his weird, like nobody in Brooklyn actually talks like that for forty years, except Marlon Brando and On the Waterfront, okay. like version from Brooklyn, and he's talked about that where it's. I'm like, you're from a suburb of Eastern Ontario in Canada, born in 1980 or whatever, why exactly do you talk this way? Like a 1950s Italian who grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, there, there are whole YouTube videos where they gauge his accent changing from performance to performance as it veers into 1950s Brooklyn. Well, you know, but, it's funny, it's not a Brian Gosling, I mean, you know, the Irish actor Colin Farrell does Yeah, the, true. Colin Farrell very famously said that, you know, becoming famous is like a shock, you know, if from which you never recover. Your life is never the same. 
And, you know, Colin Farrell comes from a very plush suburb in uh, West Dublin, mm-hmm. a lovely place called Castle Knock. And um, if you chat to the people who live in that suburb where he, where he grew up, they all have very comfortable middle class accents. And when Colin Farrell first burst onto the scene, he dropped the middle class accent and went for a hard working class Dublin accent. And I can understand, I can understand perfectly. It was his buffer zone to, to protect himself. He was inventing a persona right, to, right. to cope with this complete shock, you know? Um, That's so I saw him one time. I went in, in the East Village to a, a sauna like there's a bathhouse that's been there for 150 years or something. And he showed up one time and just walked into the hottest room of quote unquote immaculate heat. And he sat there doing like a Brando scowl the entire time. He was very friendly, but he just sat there like leaning his head down and kind of the eyebrows looking up like a bit James Dean, a bit Brando. And I mean, I just thought, wow, is this who he is? Because you watch him in a film like Tigerland, which to me is one of his best performances. He had so much potential to be more than just a beautiful guy. Yeah. Um, but it's funny, but it's funny you should mention that seeing him because actually I was in school with his older brother. I wasn't in class with Eamon. But if you think uh, Colin Farrell is, is is handsome, not not beside his brother, Eamon was. Tony Curtis, beautiful, wow. unbelievably. I mean, to the point that as a teenage boy, I was confused for a couple of weeks whenever I saw. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's as good a place as any to leave it. Um, we are going to pick up on Brando. Geez, 1972, uh, Last Tango in Paris. This will be an interesting one next. But this was fun on the waterfront. Yeah, thanks, million. Yeah. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring.